It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here, as always, in the front row. And with us, it is JR Equipment behind the scenes, our creator, producer, and director. Coming up on today's episode, it is Mark Zuckerman. He is the Nationals beat writer in Washington, D.C. Got his start in newspaper, print media, now working for MassInSports.com, covering the Nationals as he did during the World Series run and also during the pandemic. Also covered the Orioles during the final year of Cal Ripken and was the beat writer for the Washington Commanders and the Redskins in D.C. as well. A two-time D.C. Sports Writer of the Year. Our guest today in the front row, it is Mark Zuckerman. Again, we appreciate you joining us here today. I know we've been trying to work on this, and it finally got you going here. And uh, I know it's a good time. Last time we talked, uh, you weren't doing anything with the lockout, so uh, things are underway for for baseball season. So I'm sure you're happy to have uh, something to report about and uh, get ready for the season here. Yeah, it was a long, slow, cold winter, Mike. It was frustrating for everybody. Nobody wanted that to drag on as long as it did. But honestly, I think most people in the industry – we're not surprised that it dragged on as long as it did. This was um, a battle that had been brewing for a few years. You go back to the last CBA that it felt like the owners had won that battle and that the players were upset about a lot of things they didn't get in it. And then you got a little taste of this in 2020 when they had to, of course, shut down because of COVID and then figure out how we're going to have a condensed season. And they couldn't even agree on how many games or how much players should be paid for it. And you, you knew that was like the first little step and what was going to be a bigger fight when the CBA expired. So everyone's just glad it's over with. Uh, we don't even have to talk about who won, who lost, what became of it all. They're playing baseball. The season's going to start next week and they're going to play 162. That's all anyone really cares about. Yeah, us fans are really the, the winners here because baseball is coming back. And we're going to dive more into that a little bit later on. But I want to look at your background and, and talk about you and, and how you got to where you are right now as a beat writer on Mass and Sports, uh, reporting on the Nationals. And for you, you were born in Pittsburgh and then eventually moved to Arizona. When did that that move happen? Because obviously, from a sports perspective, Pittsburgh's a, a great sports town. It is. And unfortunately, I only get to spend the first two years of my life there before we moved out west. And this is 1978 that we moved there. So at that time, Phoenix had the Suns, and that was it. So I grew up a Suns fan which was great. They were a really good team in the 80s and early 90s. I loved them. Uh, but then I took after my family, which was all originally from Pittsburgh and became Pirates, Steelers, Penguins fan. So it, it worked out for all those years. And then eventually we got the Cardinals and I started following them, but they were never that good. Um, the Diamondbacks, I was already graduating college by the time they arrived. I knew that was a big deal. And the Coyotes never really got into. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of a strange perspective, but what I've learned over the years there are thousands and thousands, if not millions, of people f- who were from Pittsburgh or have ties to Pittsburgh that have remained uh, loyal to their teams, and they haven't lived in Pittsburgh in a very long time. It's a very national fan base, especially the Steelers. Um, there's no such thing as a Steelers road game. I've been to Steelers games in Phoenix. I've seen them in you know California, Florida, D.C., anywhere. There's always Steelers fans, and it's I, I get annoyed because the announcers will say, oh, Steelers fans travel well. I said, no, they don't travel well. They already live there. They're everywhere because they dispersed over the decades from where they you know, originally grew up. Yeah, it's uh, certainly an iconic NFL franchise in the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. For, for you, how much was sports uh, part of your background? Were you playing sports or were you just following sports growing up? So I grew up playing baseball, Little League, just like you know so many other kids, and I loved it. I uh, played hockey briefly, soccer briefly, but none of that ever really took off. Baseball was always my number one passion, and both playing it and then I, I really enjoyed growing up reading the newspapers every morning and the sports section fell in love with it and loved the idea of writing. And at a, at a pretty young age, I would say probably about age 10, I kind of had an idea that this might be what I wanted to do uh, for my career. I didn't know for sure it was going to work out like that. And back then I would have thought the only way to do that is to write for a newspaper for your whole life. And I started out in newspapers. Um, but as we saw the world change a lot and the journalistic world change a lot, I wound up doing uh, pretty much exclusively online work and, uh, that's the, you know, I'm not going to say it's the future, it's the present. This is what it is now. And it's going to continue to be that way. And I've been very fortunate to be able to sustain a career doing that, uh, as much change as there has been in the industry. 
what was it about baseball? Because it seems like baseball guys, as you seem to be just, it's just the romance of the game and just everything that goes along with it. What really attracted you to, to baseball and it made that be your sport? Um, I think I like, first of all, the complexity of it, as opposed to some other sports, there's a lot more to it. And, but, and yet it's still fairly simple. If you just watch it the first time, you can pick it up. And then as you get to know the game, you understand more and more how much there really is going on behind the scenes and in everyone's heads. Um, you know, along the way it, maybe it's naive of me to think this, but I feel like you watch baseball players and there is a sense that you can relate to them a little bit more like, Oh, I did that. I, you know, I hit a ball. I could play catch. I could throw pitches as opposed to, you know, football or hockey where you have to be on skates and, you know, basketball athletes are so tremendous and you have to be tall. I wasn't tall. So that wasn't ever going to be a thing. Um, So I, you know, I liked that part of it. And professionally, I really like, the day-to-day grind of it. It's not for everyone. It's 162 games. It's every single day. Um, but I've covered all the other sports at some point along the way. And what I found is that I really do like baseball best for that reason. Um, I got into this because I like writing about what's happening on the field, not off the field. And in other sports, you know, football, I covered now the commanders uh, for two seasons a while back. And I loved the game days. But I really didn't enjoy the rest of the week and the rest of the year. It's just all hype and writing about what might be happening at some point. I'd rather write about what is happening. And so in baseball, for better or worse, there's always another game to watch and always another game to write about. And so it doesn't allow you to look too far behind or too far ahead. Um, I appreciate that. Not everyone. It's not for every writer. Uh, not everyone wants to have that daily grind like that. But I've always appreciated it. And uh, you know, hopefully it best suits my abilities. Yeah, like you said, there's a game after a game after a game, always something to report upon. Uh, from Scottsdale, you, you go to Northwestern. Uh, obviously, they've got a very great background when you look at print journalism, broadcast journalism as well. Was that the main thing that attracted you to, to Northwestern going there from Scottsdale, Arizona? That and the fact that they had a National League team, Wrigley Field. I was going to get to go there as much as possible. And believe me, we took every opportunity we could to get on the Elf. Nice Friday afternoon. Eh, maybe we don't have to go to class this afternoon. We'll go sit in the bleachers at Wrigley. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it was the journalism school. I knew that it had a good reputation. Like I said, I kind of had a sense what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I also knew it was just a really good school in general. So if I got there and decided, now nah, this isn't what I want to do, maybe something else, there'd be other opportunities. Uh, but I loved it there. I was very fortunate in my timing. I was there from 94 to 98. And in 1995, the football team, which had been the doormats of college football for decades, out of nowhere, won the Big Ten and went to the Rose Bowl for the first time since 1949. And I got to be there and experience it, go to the Rose Bowl, sit in the stands, see 60,000 Northwestern fans, which you got to understand, our home stadium only seats about 45,000. In Evanston, and there were more than that in the Rose Bowl against USC, a local team from LA, and there was more purple in the stands than wow. uh, maroon and gold. Once in a lifetime experience, and so I was really fortunate to get to be there at that time, and that kind of helped foster my interest in in being a sports writer. Yeah, it's easy to fall in love when when that's a backdrop, the the Rose Bowl. And, <laughs> but you did a great job, obviously, during your time there. You know, and I talk to to students now. Hey, you've got to do stuff during your time. At school, and you did it. You had three really good internships in some some big places as well. Tell us about that, and and you know what you learned at those stops in those internships during your time. Yeah, so a couple of different internships there. Um, the first one was through school and was in San Bernardino, California, which doesn't sound like a big city, and it's not, but it's really on the outskirts of L.A. And at that time, that newspaper doesn't exist anymore. Unfortunately, a San Bernardino Sun um, would cover all the L.A. teams. And so it was a small staff, so they had to use everybody they had. And so even as an intern, I got a chance to cover some Lakers games, Clippers, Ducks, Kings, uh, USC, UCLA. It was a great experience. And to get to do that as a young kid um, kind of got me started and really understanding what it is like to you know write on deadline and be under that kind of pressure. Uh, then I got a summer internship at a now defunct Chicago newspaper called The Daily Southtown. And this was just dumb luck that this worked out like this for me, but it really shaped my whole career. Um, again, small staff that was still covering all the teams in town. So they had one writer to cover each team, but they needed help. And the idea is the intern was that I was going to be filling in uh, whenever anybody needed days off in the summer. That would mean a lot of Cubs and a lot of White Sox. And by sure coincidence, um, 
after they had hired me for the internship, but before I started, the sports editor was bumped up to the managing editor of the paper and the Cubs writer was bumped up to sports editor. And all of a sudden they didn't have a Cubs writer anymore. And so they just kind of let me do it because <laughs> they didn't have anyone. Now, the key here, this is 1997. They were a bad team. They were one year away from Sammy Sosa and uh, Kerry Wood and all the excitement of that. If it had happened in 98, maybe a different story. But on a bad team in 97 for a south suburban Chicago paper that was more interested in the White Sox at that time, it wasn't as big a deal. And so they said, hey, go ahead, kid. Why don't you cover them, you know, this bad team for the rest of the summer? I got to spend a summer as a baseball beat writer at age 20 to 21, and it was phenomenal, and it really kind of fostered my love of, of doing this. And it's great that the, the professionals who were covering the team for the other outlets at that time were so nice to me. 20 years later, a lot of them were still there. I was covering the Nationals, and the Nats played the Cubs in the playoffs, and we were remarking on this, that here we are covering a, a playoff series together 20 years after I was just an intern there. I mean, Wrigley Field is the backdrop. Your, your office, as you yeah. said, a, as a kid. I mean, you pinch yourself at that point and be like, what, what's going on here? What, what, where am I right now? Yeah, it was phenomenal. And um, I probably got it. Unfortunately, I got a, a, a the wrong impression of what sports writing is like because they play all day games, you know, a few night games here and there. And you get this backdrop of looking out at the, the ivy and the bleachers every day. And then I realized later on no most games aren't there and most games are at night and you're working a lot later uh and i wasn't traveling yet at that point so it, there's a lot more to the job than just that but it, it makes it great every year when i get to go back there um you know i have a soft spot for wrigley field forever so you graduated in 1998 and your first job i guess out of school was down in corpus christi texas is that correct you're covering college basketball how did how did that change because again baseball is your love you go to texas Maybe no connection there, and now it's college basketball that, that you're the beat writer for. Yeah, look, you got to take a job where you can take them when you're right out of college, right? And um, that one was available to me. It was recommended to me by some professional writers I knew who they knew the guy who was becoming the sports editor there. And it, it was it was a lot of fun. This is a brand-new college basketball team. Maybe people have heard of them now, Texas A&M Corpus Christi. They made the tournament this year uh, in the play-in game, wound up losing it, unfortunately. But they were brand new at the time. They were starting from scratch as a Division I independent basketball program, which is kind of unheard of. Most teams would start out Division Three, Division Two, and you know work their way up. They started from scratch at D1. They weren't in a conference. They had to play whoever they could. And I wound up traveling all over the country to Montana State, uh, Eastern Washington, Stony Brook, New York, uh, Iowa State. I'm trying to remember all the places. It, it, was, it was kind of crazy, but it was a lot of fun to now cover this program from the beginning. I did it for two years. Um, you know, very slowly they started to build it up. They got into the Southland Conference. They won that title and made the tournament uh, sometime in the late 2000s. Um, you know, they haven't had a whole lot of success since, but great people there, great experience. And then, of course, if you're going to work at a newspaper in a relatively small town in Texas, it doesn't matter what your primary beat is. On Friday nights in the fall, you're covering high school football. <laughs> And so I got to experience what Texas high school football is about. And it's everything that everybody says it is and more for better or worse. Uh, but that was a pretty cool experience to, to see how, just how much that means to people down there. It's a bigger deal than anything else in town. So Islanders basketball and Friday night lights for you. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty cool for your first job out of college. Yeah, no, it was a great experience. And, you know, a lot of young writers were kind of in the same boat as me and we all bonded together. And I, I I still have fond memories. I'm still in touch with a lot of the people who I knew there. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that I would have seen my whole life playing out in Corpus Christi. I was, a, like you said, a kid from Pittsburgh and Scottsdale and school in Chicago living in a little Texas town for the first time. But um, it was a great experience. And the beautiful city right on the waterfront on the Gulf of Mexico. I was driving in along the coastline every day. I, I loved it there. Yeah, a little bit like our setting here in Wilmington, North yeah. Carolina, on the, on the on the coast here. So. How'd you get from there to the Washington Times? Because 2001, you start your time at the at the Washington Times. How, how did that transpire for you going from Texas to D.C.? So one other stop that I forgot to mention there, the, the last of my internships was at home in Phoenix at the Arizona Republic, the big paper there. Uh, summer after I graduated, I got to do that. And I met some really good writers there uh, who I stayed in touch with, one of whom wound up moving to Washington, D.C., to the Washington Times. And uh, knew I liked baseball, knew I had some experience doing it. And he called me up one day and said, hey, we need a new Orioles writer. Now, this time the Nationals don't exist. 
and they still covered the Orioles, the DC papers did, as kind of their hometown team. Uh, we need a new Orioles writer. Would you be interested? I, I will mention your name to our boss. I said, sure. Next thing I know, I'm flying out there for an interview. Uh, and like I said, that experience in Chicago of getting to cover the Cubs, I think really helped. Um, I was 24 years old, but I already had some experience covering Major League Baseball. And so I got that job, moved out there uh, February of 2001 and hit the ground running covering the Orioles. And that first year on the Orioles beat is Cal Ripken Jr.'s final season. God. And again, like the, 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 I'm very blessed in what I've been able to experience in my life. And it's just by happenstance. I didn't plan any of this out. Uh, and so getting to cover that, the team was awful, but to experience Cal's final season, get to know him a little bit and just see that farewell tour as it all played out, um, really a memorable situation for a young writer like me. Was that the focus of most of your writing that season? The second half, sure. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, at some point around the all-star break, I think that he announced that it was going to be his last season and that sort of took over everything else. First half of the season, it was about the team. They were hoping to be better and they weren't. They actually, in spring training, one of the first big stories I had to report on was that Albert Bell, who was their big slugger, uh, but was dealing with a hip injury, wound up being forced into retirement. The hip injury was so bad, he just had to walk away in spring training. And that was kind of crazy having to figure out how to deal with that. Um, then the season starts. Cal wasn't playing all that well. There was a lot of talk about should he be playing every day or not. Then he announces the retirement. And that became the focus. But then, you know, September 11th hits. <laughs> And that changed everything. And, and the crazy thing, again, so many more important things were happened as a result of 9-11. But one of the strange domino effects of it was that Ripken's final game originally on the schedule was supposed to be in New York against the Yankees. And because of that game was wiped out, or a week of games was wiped out from 9-11 before they resumed again, they took that entire last week of games and moved it to the end of the schedule and added it on the back end. And what that meant is that Cal's final game was now going to be at home in a homestand. And all these people who had tickets to what they just thought was going to be a random game now had tickets to Cal's final game. And it was a huge story about how uh, the, the value of those tickets went up. People who bought tickets to see him in New York, that no longer was a big deal. Um, but I think in the end, it was fitting. He got to play his last game at home in Baltimore in front of their fans. It was a really emotional you know, you, you dealt with the pandemic this year, but then you mentioned 9-11 back then as well. What was that like for you? You know, and were you reporting on things non-baseball or, or, you know, tied to to baseball, get, try to get it back to baseball with everything that was happening with 9-11? Yeah, it was so surreal. I was So the Orioles were home that week, like I said, because those were the games that were made up. I know a lot of writers were out of town somewhere and were, were stranded. So I'm just, you know, at home, I wake up in the morning, uh, I think I got a call and said, hey, turn on the TV and watch with everyone else in horror. And then you're watching that all day. And at some point, I get a call from one of the editors saying, hey, we need a story about the games being canceled. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, who cares about that right now? Yeah. But that's the job. You know, we needed to report on that. So I did write about not just the baseball games that were canceled, but all the other events. And then it was a strange week of trying to figure out when's it going to start again, when's it not. Uh, and so it was a week later that they resumed play. The Orioles, again, by just chance of the schedule, were playing in Toronto. Now, that's like the only city where it wasn't that big a deal because you're now in Canada in a different country. The team was out of the race at that point, so they actually told me, go find another game to go to that's nearby. It was Philadelphia. So it was the Braves and the Phillies, and I went to the old vet to cover that. And there were a lot of nerves. People didn't really know what to expect. Were fans going to cheer? Was there any reason to be nervous about security? And everyone was on edge a little bit and then the game starts and I, I think the Phillies scored a couple runs early and the fans start cheering and it was like this relief like oh okay we can do this again it's going to be okay uh and so an unexpected place for me to be that night but I'm glad I got to, to experience what that was like yeah I'm sure that had to be like I said from a fan's perspective what do we do can, can we be happy can we can we you know enjoy a, a game here and uh, certainly a difficult times but uh, uh great stuff for you there uh covering that certainly uh from from baseball and the orioles you went to the redskins the commanders whatever you want to call them now uh what was that transition like for you and, and was that something that you wanted you welcomed during your time there at the, the washington times so uh like i said at that point the nationals don't exist they are covering the orioles who as a franchise were starting to really turn south and weren't as big a deal at least in dc um 
we had sort of a shifting of beats at the paper. One of the football beats opened up and my editor asked if I'd be interested in doing it. And I said, sure, I'd give it a try. And what was good about that for me was this was the first time that I was now really covering the number one team in town that everybody was paying attention to. And I was covering it for one of the DC papers. So there was a lot more pressure, a lot more interest. Anything that I wrote on that beat was going to be scrutinized both by fans and by the people that I was covering. They were going to notice it. So that was an important, I think, experience for me to get to do that. I covered Steve Spurrier's second and final disastrous year in Washington. And then I covered Joe Gibbs' first year back after the long layoff. So two very eventful seasons. There weren't a lot of wins in that, but there was a lot of news. And, um, you know, it was good for me to experience what that was like. But like I said before, I loved the game days. That, that was fascinating to me. What I really didn't enjoy was all the other days. It's all those days of hype for only 16 days that matter. And a lot of writers live for that stuff. And we've seen the NFL is a 365 a day year monster. People love the draft. They love OTAs. They love training camp. They love all the midweek stories. I just wasn't as interested in that. And so I knew in the back of my mind and my editor had said, like, listen, if we do ever get a baseball team here in D.C., you'll be first on the list to get to cover it. And so two years later, that's when the Expos uh, moved to D.C. and I got to make that move back. Yeah, right place, right time for you there, certainly. Uh, a recent guest of ours was Danny Warfel, who, who was playing for Spurrier with the Redskins, I guess, yeah. a little bit at the time. And and he was cut. That was unpopular, right? Was uh, It was Daniel Snyder who who wanted to release him, I guess. And, and that was a little unpopular with, with Spurrier at the time. Was it was that one of the storylines you were following at that time? I, I think I remember, yes. And I mean, you know, Werfel was one of Spurrier's guys, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he had a lot of guys that he tried to bring in. And that was sort of that power dynamic there that didn't go so well. But, got, you know, it's funny. Already in like 2003, 2004, we're writing about how this franchise has kind of lost its way and how Dan Snyder is meddling too much and too many coaching changes and too many quarterbacks. It's almost 20 years ago now, and it's still the same story. It hasn't changed at all for them. And it's it's remarkable to think about that, how they just have not been able to figure it out finally. And, you know, a lot of coaches do different GMs, a lot of players. What's the one constant there? There's only one. It's all the way at the top. And at some point, you have to say that might be the reason for all the dysfunction there over the years. So I take it you've had some interactions with him doing stories and and and, you know, dealing with Daniel Snyder during your time there. A little bit. Yeah. Um, he was a little more open to media at that point. It was still kind of early in his tenure. He took us all out to dinner one year, I think, before uh, week one and, uh, you know, tried to smooth talk us and tell us about how great the team was going to be. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a strange dynamic, of course. I mean, obviously, the last couple of years, a lot of other stuff has gotten out about him and the culture there. And he's sort of on probation, maybe not really working every day with the team, although there's some question about how much involvement he really has um i can just tell you from my time there and just following them living in town all these years since it is the one constant is that anytime it looks like things might be going in one direction there or they might have finally brought in people who you know have football acumen and have the authority to make decisions inevitably the owner steps in and does something that disrupts it and look you're the owner of the team you have the right to do whatever you want but at some point you would think you'd realize it hasn't worked this team has had no success. They are, they don't want to admit it, but they are one of the bottom five franchises in the NFL and have been for a while now. They deserve to be, you know, on in the same conversation as the Lions and the uh, the Jaguars. I would say the Browns and the Bengals, but they're actually starting to turn it up a little bit. So that's who they are. And it's sad uh, for so many fans there who grew up with them in the 80s as this iconic franchise. They still want to cling to that past, but it's been a long time since they were that. And I think They've lost a whole generation. Uh, uh, my son's 10 years old. I go to pick him up at school. I don't see any kids in Washington jerseys or talking about them. They're, they root for other teams. Uh, it's going to take a long time to win back the fan base. It's not just going to happen in one year. It's going to have to be sustained success and really a change in the way they operate. Yeah, I know even uh, down here in North Carolina before the Panthers, I think a lot of people were were Washington fans in yeah. NFL football, but uh, that's certainly changed. Uh, again, so you made the change. You go back to baseball become the, the Nationals uh, beat writer again. Uh, tell us about the early days of them, making that transition, going from the Expos, coming to, to D.C., and, and what that was like covering, you know, a new old franchise, I guess, if you will. So, I mean, it was thrilling because everyone was so excited. 33 years later, baseball's coming to D.C., but it was also incredibly chaotic. 
you know, they didn't have a lot of run-up time to this. They formally announced the move on the last day of the season in 2004 that the Expos were coming down there. Well, they now had to build an entire front office that wasn't in existence. They had to figure out how RFK Stadium was going to work for baseball. It hadn't been used for baseball since the Senators in 1971. And that stadium was in pretty bad shape at that point. It required a lot of renovation, and it was a scramble to get it just to be usable by Major League Standards. And it really wasn't Major League Standards. You had the new ballpark that had to be approved, the funding for it. That was a whole fight. Uh, it finally all you know scrambles together, and now it's opening day. And really one of the highlights of my career and for so many baseball fans in D.C., getting to go there. A lot of, a lot of people who just never thought that day would come. I'm not sure everyone understands how for decades Washington was like teased with the idea of baseball coming back. There was one point the Astros were maybe going to move there. Then the Padres were maybe going to move there. There was expansion in you know the 90s when uh, Colorado and Florida got teams, then Tampa and Arizona. And every time Washington was passed over, but it was always that next one on the list. And a lot of people thought it would never happen. And so it finally did. And you have this first home game there. And they did such an amazing job of this. They brought back all nine players who were on the field for the Senators for their final game in 71 against the Yankees. They went out and took their positions in the field. And then they announced the opening day lineup for the Nationals, who trotted out there. And the old Senators handed over the gloves to the new players to wow. take their position. And the, the pitcher who uh, was the last one on the mound, his name is Joe Grizenda, he had saved all those years the ball, the last ball thrown. He walked out, he had it, and he handed it to President Bush, who then took them out to throw the ceremonial first pitch. Wow. And I can tell you, there were a lot of grown men who had tears uh, in their eyes that night. And it, it's amazing, like, just the idea of having a team was all that anybody cared about. At that point, it wasn't about wins and losses. And it wound up being that that team contended, surprisingly, and was on pace for like 100 wins halfway through the season. It didn't end up happening. They collapsed. But just a phenomenal return of baseball in D.C., and everyone fell in love with the team and with the sport again, and it's kind of taken off ever since. And again, you go back to you know the romance of baseball and just just the history of it. I don't know if you could have gotten a moment like that in, in some other sports. No, I agree. That that's the beauty of it. And I, you know, baseball always walks this fine line of trying to worrying: Are we being too nostalgic? Do we need to move forward? I say embrace it. You know, that's what you have that the other sports don't have. Sure, there are things you can do to make the game better and more like other sports. You can speed things up you know, reduce the downtime between pitches, uh, you know, be better at, at reaching a streaming audience online as opposed to just forcing you to watch on TV. But, you know, embrace the best things you have, and that's the nostalgia of it. And that's why I loved last year the Field of Dreams game mm -hmm. that they played in Iowa, the White Sox and the Yankees. It was so cool. It was so unique. It was something that only baseball could do. I'm glad they're going to do it again. I think they're trying to come up with some other ideas of other unusual places they could hold games. It's a little bit like the NHL Winter Classic, which I think is a great thing the NHL has done. But yeah, if you're baseball, embrace that. That's what you can do that brings out the emotions in everybody of every generation that you're just not going to find in football or basketball. Yeah, I know. Like you said, trying to fine-tune it sometimes for today's day and age and today's fans, and, and you got to be careful how much you tweak things because, again, it is such a historic uh, sport and a, and a you know, the pastime that it is. Uh, for you, you go from the Washington Times to Comcast Sportsnet, now uh, NBC Sports Washington, but you're still the, the beat writer for the Nationals. But how, how did your job and your role change going from the, the Times to, to, you know, Comcast Sportsnet? Yeah, so what happened was uh, at the end of 2009, uh, a lot of newspapers were already starting to be in trouble, and the Washington Times was especially there. They killed the whole sports staff. They just eliminated it and decided we're not going to cover sports anymore. It turns out a year later, they realized the mistake there and brought it back. But we were all out of jobs. Uh, and so now what are you going to do? And some were fortunate to get jobs quickly. I, I wound up actually like starting my own blog uh, called Nats Insider and was able to do that for a little while for the year. Thanks in large part to uh, donations made by readers who wanted to keep the coverage going. They helped send me down here to Florida for spring training and um, helped me get through the season as sort of like a pre-subscription model. I didn't really know what I was doing. This is 2010. At the same time, I was starting to do some freelance work for what was then Comcast Sportsnet. And uh, by the end of that year, 
uh, as the team was getting better and they were growing their staff, they were able to hire me full time. But yeah, I mean, it's very different. All those years at a newspaper, you're writing with a specific deadline to make the next morning's paper. If it didn't make the paper, that's it. Wasn't going to happen. You know, we were starting to write some web only stories, but that the web was seen as like secondary to the hard copy of the paper. And then all of a sudden now you're working for a full time, uh, you know, online outlet. And here's the best example of the difference at a newspaper back in the day, if it's the middle of the off season and uh, I find out the Nats made a trade at 10 in the morning. Maybe I'm out shopping at the grocery store. I could say, OK, I'll, you know, when I get home, I'll write that story. I'll make sure I have it in time for deadline now. And, you know, once you start working online, you get news of that. You're probably getting an alert on your phone because somebody tweeted it. You're now texting somebody to try to confirm the news. You're tweeting it yourself and you're racing to get to a computer or your own phone or whatever you have to do and write up a quick story and get it published immediately. And that's the changing world. That's what's different. And so all of a sudden it's a 24 hour a day job. Um, there are advantages to that, disadvantages to that, but it's the, you know, it's the reality of it. You can't change that. So uh, I had to learn what that was like. Uh, you know, all of a sudden now you're working for a website that's part of a TV station. So I'm having to learn how to be on TV and be comfortable on camera doing things I've never done before. Um, but what I think is good, and as we've learned over the years, you have to be able to adapt in this business. There is, you can't just say, well, this is the way we always did it, so we have to keep doing it that way. It doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. So I was forced to learn how to adapt. I hope I've done it well. I've you know, worked for online outlets and TV stations ever since. I do my own podcast now. So it's, it's a changing world, but you have to adapt with it. And um, you know, I hope other sports writers out there have come to realize that, that the best selling point you can have for yourself right now in the industry is be versatile, be able to do whatever they need to do in multiple different forms, be able to write, be able to speak, uh, and and you know don't become just too set in doing it one way. Be be willing to adapt to however the world changes. Well, that said, though, again, you grew up reading the newspaper, reading about these sports. Is, is there some sadness with that as well? That 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 time maybe has come and gone. Like you, you talk to kids now in the newspaper. What is that? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you know, like you said, everything is is shifted to, to online and social media these days. Yeah, no, it's definitely something lost. I still get the Washington Post every morning. You know, I'm one of the last remaining ones, I guess. I still like it. I like sitting down, uh, you know, with my breakfast and flipping through the sports section. And I remember thinking for a long time, oh, newspapers are never going to die. Uh, you know why? Because you can't bring your laptop into the bathroom with you. Well, we didn't anticipate this. <laughs> you can bring this anywhere with you and read yeah. stories wherever you go. And that changed everything. But um, yeah, yeah, I still have great respect for newspapers. I love the ones that still really put the resources into it because I think it can be done. You adapt, of course, their websites are just as important as the hard copy, but there's still something about that hard copy. And I'll tell you when I felt it the most was the day after game seven of the World Series. The Nationals win their first World Series it's a great thrill to get to cover that. But the next morning, my article was on a website. It's nothing that I could frame. It's nothing that I could print out. It it's, just doesn't look the same. And there's the Washington Post with the all-time you know, cover, world champions, big photo of Ryan Zerman celebrating. You know, I have a poster of that in my house. That, that's the commemorative, the keepsake that you only get from a print publication. And that's, that's the one time I really felt it more than any other that or I, I wish I had been working for a newspaper for that instead of a website. Yeah, no more newspapers to frame. Like I said, no more tickets anymore to, to frame for, yeah. for big games like that. Uh, but you mentioned the World Series. Let's, let's talk about that and, and and what that was like to cover that team because that year it didn't start out very well for, for the Nationals that year. And even, you know, they were talking about a, a change of the top as far as the manager was concerned. But what was it about that team? And, and when did you, maybe the other media sense that maybe something special could happen with this team yeah so first let's look at the backdrop of the almost a decade prior to that that they were becoming good and contending they made they won the division four times uh went to the playoffs and each time lost in the first round usually in a heartbreaking fashion 2012 against the cardinals 2014 against the giants 2016 against the dodgers 2017 against the cubs and so there was this narrative built about the nationals that they can't win the big one. And they went through several managers to try to get there. Davey Johnson, Matt Williams, Dusty Baker, who ends up getting fired after two straight division titles. And now you bring in Davey Martinez and his first year in 2018 did not go well. They underachieved. 
They barely finished at 500. And so there was a lot of pressure on him, a lot of pressure on the team going into 2019. Now you start the season with a lot of injuries. Their bullpen was a mess and was blowing games left and right. They had the worst ERA in baseball. And they get swept in New York in late May, and they're now 19 and 31. And the writing seems to be on the wall. They're going to need to change managers again. They, uh, it, it's, it's not going to work. They got to blow this thing up, start all over. It's a disaster. And, you know, I was there covering it. It was bad. And the idea of them being able to turn it all the way around and win a World Series did not really cross my mind. But what I did know was this, and I used this as, uh, you know, ammunition when, over the last two years when as media we were held out of the clubhouse for COVID reasons and having to do interviews over Zoom, that what I felt like I was able to do by being in the clubhouse every day with that team, I knew the players, I knew the vibe in there. I knew that as bad as the record was, it was a close-knit group. They weren't turning on each other. They supported Davey 100% as their manager. So I never really sensed that his job was in jeopardy. Now, like I said, I didn't predict they were going to go on to win the World Series, but I knew they were better than that, that they were going to get healthy, that the team was still close-knit. They weren't blaming each other for how they were losing games. And then you saw it come together in spectacular fashion, and they really were for more than four months the best team in baseball. And people look at that and say, oh, they went on this like incredible – uh, October run, an all-time run, and they did. But it wasn't like just a team that got hot right at the end. They played they, they played 666 ball from May 24th all the way through the World Series. So they were a juggernaut the rest of the way. They had star players, uh, and by the time it got to the postseason, it all came together finally in spectacular fashion. And then what they had, and whether that was a reflection of all the adversity they went through earlier in the year or not, I don't know, but they had this ability to come from behind and never believe that the game was over. They faced five elimination games that October. They didn't just win them all, but they came from behind to win them all. They were trailing in every one of those games, including game seven of the World Series. And that was a testament to Davey Martinez and his attitude and what he instilled in them and the uh, the attitude within the clubhouse that no matter how bad things looked at 19 and 31, they weren't going to give up. They were going to keep fighting and they pulled it off and it really... You know, maybe I'm biased because I was there every day, but to me, that's one of the great postseason runs we've ever seen. One of the great stories of a team uh, coming together to win a title like that. From your perspective, is that when you were doing your best work? I mean, again, when a team wins, even from my perspective, I sound a lot better when I'm broadcasting a winning team. Does it make your work and overall your job that much better when a team is winning, teams on a roll, and obviously wins the championship at the end? Yeah, there's a lot of gratification to it. I mean, I tell everyone always, like, I don't work for the team. I'm not a fan of the team. But given the choice, would you rather cover a winning team or a losing team? Of course, you'd rather cover a winning team. And for me, what was special about that was we were just talking about having been there on opening night in 2005. So really having seen this thing grow all the way from what it was to the end, I, I felt a connection to the franchise and to the fan base uh, and the people who had worked there through it all. The, one of the coolest things for me being in the clubhouse afterwards, you know, you do all the interviews with the players and the champagne everywhere, but then off in the, on the side or in the hallways, you run into people who work for the team, people who the public don't know behind the scenes, folks who had been there all along and to see what this meant for them uh, to finally get to the top um, was really cool. And to get to experience that. And, you know, I wasn't a part of the championship at all. I had nothing to do with it, but I got to chronicle it and, um, it is a gratifying experience to get to see all that. Now, little did we know at the time, that would really be the last time that we all were together like that for yeah. two years because 2020, everything blew up and it changed. And unfortunately for their franchise and the fan base, what should have been the victory lap year, they never got. And they just had to settle for the memories of 20, uh, 2019. Who was your favorite Nat to, to talk to during that run and during that time that you knew that, Okay, he was going to give you some insight, but you know he would give you a good soundbite as well, maybe. Well, Max Scherzer is probably number one on my list that I've covered over the years. I, I loved covering him because both as a pitcher, you never knew exactly what you were going to get. No two starts were the same, and as an interview, you never really knew what you were going to get. He's very engaged. He wants to be challenged by writers. He doesn't. He'll let you know if you ask a bad question. You better come prepared for it. Um, he's intense at everything he does, but really insightful. Uh, and I really enjoyed that, not just, you know, interviewing him after he pitched, 
but on the, all the other days of, of the week when he wasn't. And, you know, he'd be sitting at his locker at four o'clock in the afternoon uh, and you're in there in open clubhouse time and he'd catch your eye and he'd say, well, what do you got? What do you got for me? You know, and you better be prepared. You better have some topic to raise with him because he wants to be challenged and be asked about it. And so, you know, to bring it forward, he was such a big part of these CBA negotiations this year as one of the members of the union's uh, executive council. I had more than a few conversations with him in the years prior to that and knew what his thoughts on the subject were. And that's one of the reasons I wasn't all that shocked about how this thing went, because I knew he was really passionate about what the players wanted in this next CBA. Was there a player that you knew? Uh, I'm not going to talk to him. They're, they're not going to give me what I, I need or, or just was difficult for you to, to deal with at times. Um, look, it's a, it was a really good group of guys that year. That was part of the reason that they were so much fun to cover is that there was such a great group. But I don't think it's any secret when I say that Steven Strasburg is not the most media friendly guy. Um, you know, I've covered him for 12 years now, and I don't really feel like I know him that much better. And I don't think anybody does. And, and that's not just media, it's even teammates. He's just a private person. That's fine. You know, I don't ever force somebody to be something they're not. Uh, if, if you're not a media darling, that's fine. Um, you know, as long as you do your obligations and meet with us after games you pitch in and, you know, treat us with the same respect we treat you with, it'll be fine. Um, now, that year, he did start to open up a little bit because things finally came together for him. He won the World Series MVP, and you saw maybe a little more joy in his face than I'd ever seen in playing baseball. Unfortunately, the last two years have been rough on him. He's had all kinds of injuries, and it's kind of back to where he was prior to that point. But no matter what happens, he's always going to have that moment and that run. Um, I think the world got to see that Steven Strasburg, number one, really did live up to being the most hyped pitching prospect we'd seen in, in maybe forever, but also legitimately got to enjoy it and show his personality a little bit because you knew it was in there somewhere. Uh, it, it was just very tightly wound and didn't want to put it on public display a lot. Yeah, it's it's hard when when so many eyes are on you and you're the next whatever, uh, you know, to to live up to that hype. Uh, so you say, you know, you know, again, you go to the locker room, you meet these guys, you get some stories, and then the pandemic hits and you don't have that opportunity. How difficult did that make it on your job? Obviously, you know, people are dying and there's other things going on with this pandemic. But from a job perspective, from you, what you know, what changed really? Yeah, I mean, look, we tried not to complain too much about it publicly because, yeah. of course, there are larger problems in the world. But it completely changed the way that we did our jobs when all of a sudden now the only access you have to them is like we're doing this right now. And it's a great it's great technology and allowed you to still do interviews in a scenario where you didn't have to be face to face with a lot of people and maybe put yourself or them at risk. But the 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 thing about the job that I don't know that everyone gets is it's not just about the formal interviews. It's about all that time you spend around them in the clubhouse. It's about building the relationships over time. And it's about sensing the room and having that vibe and knowing what's going on. I, I shared that about 2019 when things were going bad at 19 and 31. If I had covered that season over Zoom, I probably would have felt like major changes needed to happen and that this team probably was in a bad place. It was only by being there and having a sense of what they were all thinking and feeling uh, that I kind of knew deep down, you know, what was really going on. And so the last two years, I really didn't feel like I had a sense of the team. When when last year went south, I didn't really know are things going, are, are they, you know, is it a bad place to be right now? Are they turning on each other? What What's the vibe in there? And I didn't know for sure. So for me and everyone else in the business, um, it really was a breath of fresh air to be told that we were going to go back to the old access rules. We're back in the clubhouse again. We're doing interviews in person. I know for broadcasters, it's a huge deal to be able to call the games on site, in person, not over monitors, to be able to see everyone, get to know everyone. It just, it makes such a difference. I, you know, I hope fans did realize that we tried hard to do our best the last two years, but I hope fans did like actually see the difference and hopefully now they're recognizing what a difference it does make when you have first person access. So during the pandemic, you're just at your house, you're watching the game like anybody else. And <laughs> the road trying games, to, yeah. Trying to, trying to write a, a story about it. Yeah, the road games, yes. Um, you know, the home games, we could be there. But especially that first year in 2020, we literally could not go anywhere other than the press box. So you go to the stadium. It's an empty stadium. There's no fans there. Yeah, You're watching the game with your own eyes. But as soon as it ends, you're now using your laptop to interview the people who are, you know, four stories below you down in the clubhouse. 
it was so surreal, very strange. I mean, look, for that year in particular, you got it. You understood this was the only way they're going to be able to play a season fine. Um, by last year, as the COVID numbers started to go down, as vaccinations you know, were going up, you kind of felt like, okay, maybe we can start to get back to something more normal. And we did eventually get to talk to players in the dugout and on the field before games, so that helped. Um, but it still wasn't, you know, fully what it is now. And so fingers crossed that we're finally over this and, um, you know, won't have to pare back any of the coverage anymore. Well, again, you've been around baseball a long time, since 2001, member of the Baseball Writers Association. You've been a, a Hall of Fame voter since 2011. I mean, you've got a feel now that you're, you're a baseball guy. Baseball is certainly in your blood going back to, to the days. Uh, what does it mean to, to be not only a member of the association, but a, but a Hall of Fame voter as well? Yeah, it's the biggest uh, honor and responsibility you can get in this business. You have to spend 10 years covering it before you get to do that. Um, it's both an incredibly cool thing to be able to do and a really, really daunting thing to do. When you get that ballot in the mail, and it's funny, it doesn't look like anything special. It's just an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. It almost looks like a Xerox copy of like a math test or something like that. But this is the real thing. And now you have to put check marks next to the names that you think are worthy of going to Cooperstown. And there's all kinds of debate about this. There's all kinds of uh, strong feelings that everyone has. And I get that. And I love the fact that everyone cares so much about it. But I'll just say it's very easy from the outside to have an opinion and say, this is what you should do. This guy should be in. This guy shouldn't be in. Here's how the process should work. Until you actually have that ballot and you know that when you put a check next to that name, it counts. Or you don't put one in, it counts. And now you have to wait to see the announcement and knowing that your vote could be the difference between getting in or not getting in, it's an awesome responsibility. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I'm glad we all have the honor of doing that, but it's not nearly as easy as it might be. These things impact lives. And I really try to remember that and not take that lightly. I put a lot of time and effort into those decisions. I don't ask everyone to agree with what I choose. You know, I write a column every year and I explain my, my picks. Nobody's gonna agree with them all, that's fine but I hope that they at least respect the process and the thought process that uh, goes into it before making those decisions. Well, this year coming up, David Ortiz, the only one that was voted in. I mean, where do you stand with the steroid era, the, the PEDs and obviously Roger Clemens and, and different guys like that, Bobby or Barry Bonds and, and, and so on and so forth. Where do you stand there? So this is what complicates everything so much. It would be hard enough if we were just judging on baseball ability. And unfortunately we're not. Now, so a couple of things to point out here. In our instructions that were given, and it's been this way since 1933, when the Hall of Fame was founded. It says there are six criteria to consider. Three of them are on playing performance, and the other three are character, integrity, and sportsmanship. And those three words have caused so many problems and consternation and debate over the years of what does that really mean? Should that be included or not? My interpretation of that is that if you did anything that on the field that threatened the integrity, character, sportsmanship of the game, then I'm not gonna vote for you. And in my mind, that includes uh, taking performance enhancing drugs uh, and, and doing so knowing that you're cheating the game. I mean, let's be honest, those were against the rules. I know there wasn't always punishment for it, but it's always been against the rules. It's against the law to take those without a prescription from a doctor. And to me, you are knowingly trying to help your own performance at the expense of the others and threatening the integrity of the game. You know, nobody ever said I took steroids to help my team win. Like they did it for themselves for the selfish act. So as hard as that is under the criteria we're given, I don't believe that anybody for which there's, you know, convincing evidence it doesn't have to be hundred percent. It doesn't have to be a positive test, but also it's not just going to be rumors. So Jeff Bagwell, Mike Piazza, I voted for them. Um, but Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, the one for whom there is, substantial evidence that they took it and that they know they knew what they were doing i don't vote for them now that all came to a head this last year with david ortiz because for the first time this was a very complicated case he was on the list or outed many years later as having been one of the players who tested positive in 2003 in what was then considered survey testing it was a trial program supposed to be anonymous there was no punishment for it so how do you view that as a voter and I wavered for years, not really knowing how I was going to handle it. I knew I'd been dreading that ballot for a long time. 
And then what finally convinced me in the end was actually Rob Manfred himself, the commissioner, saying that he didn't feel like those results from that year should carry the same weight as others, that it was a trial program, there were issues with it, that there were a number of false positives in that group. Now, they didn't know and he didn't know who fell into that category. But I looked at David Ortiz, who 2003 is still pretty early in his career. He played a lot longer after that in a testing era, never tested positive, still sustained huge numbers throughout his career. And so in the end, even though he had you know, a black mark against him, a steroid mark against him, I voted for him. He got in. Um, not everyone agreed with that decision. I get it. Uh, I was a little uneasy about it, but I just felt like the evidence that I had said to me, I, I didn't feel comfortable holding him out over that. Um, it was not easy. <laughs> uh, there's never The thing with this is there's no right answer. Yeah. There is absolutely no right answer to this question. I respect anybody, whatever their decision is, as long as you put the thought process into it. Yeah, I can tell you definitely did. As you said, you take this uh, great responsibility to, to be a voter. It's life changing for these people. So it, it sounds like, you know, you were tormented a little bit with, with some of the decisions, and, and but did the research as well. Do you, you see everybody else kind of doing the same thing as far as the writers are concerned? Do you see these guys maybe eventually getting voted in some way? Yeah, I think um, the vast majority of voters put real effort and time into it. And I don't know them all, but everyone that I talk to takes this very seriously as a responsibility. And so I, I do cringe whenever writers or whenever fans will say, oh, writers shouldn't be allowed to do this. It should be fans. It should be ex-players, whatever else. No, I'm still confident that the writers are the best qualified group to do this, the most impartial, the ones who are going to put the research in and understand um, what they're doing. Now, the, the pool of writers changes every year because you have older writers who retire and are taken off uh, the list. And then you have newer writers who are now accruing those 10 years. And what we have seen as a trend over the last decade is that younger writers are more lenient towards steroid users. Bonds and Clemens and those guys, you know, it's funny, like we think, oh, those guys have been held out that that, that writers have, have kept them out. 60% of writers vote for Bonds and Clemens every year. It's a majority, but it takes 75% to get yeah. in. It's hard to do that. So um, I think the opinions have changed. And I think over time, we're going to become less maybe strict on those things. But I can tell you now, Bonds and Clemens, uh, they've had their 10 years on the ballot. They will go to a veterans committee, which is a smaller group of some ex-players, Hall of Famers themselves, some veteran media members, some um, uh, baseball executives. And we'll see how that works out. But the sense I always got was that that group is even more adamant against putting PED users in the Hall of Fame than the writers were because you're talking about some of the Hall of Famers themselves. And from the old timers that I've talked to over the years, they didn't want to be associated with steroid users. They didn't feel those players should be put in the same room as them. So we'll see. It's complicated. It's not going to go away. This is going to be here for a long time, unfortunately. Yeah, it's going to be a, an ongoing story for sure. Uh, for you, you're well-respected among your peers. You're, you're a two-time D.C. Sports Writer of the Year of the National Sports Media Association, our friend Dave Gordon, who does a great job there, 2017-2021. And again, because it's from your peers, what does an award like that mean to you? Yeah, that's a cool thing to get. Uh, and like you said, it's because from your peers. Um, you know, I, I don't do my job. I don't work in search of awards. I, uh, I never wrote a story thinking, oh, this could be an award winner. Um, but, you know, I, I write for my audience, for the readers, for the fans of the teams that I cover. But it's nice and, and, and humbling when you do find out later on that your peers think that highly of you to, uh, to give you an award like that. So to get it twice, especially you feel like, okay, well, the first one wasn't a fluke. Somebody out there must actually think I do a good job. And that's, that's nice to hear. Although I do think it's a little funny that I got those awards, would you say 17 and 21, you just said, we're talking about the 2019 postseason run. And did you do some of your best work that year? And I'd say <laughs> probably yes, that would have been the year I maybe would have thought it would happen. And instead it was off a year when they were, uh, you know, a good team, but didn't advance in the playoffs. And then off a pandemic year, which I didn't even have access to anybody. So how was I? I didn't feel like I did my best job last year, but it's nice to know that uh, other colleagues out there. Well, so. again, it's easy to write about a World Series champion. It's, it's tougher right. when, they're, when they're not that. So, <laughs> so yeah, you, you, you earn that award in 2017 and 2021. Uh, getting ready here for this year and uh, certainly for the Washington Nationals, you look at them and uh, Juan Soto, uh, outstanding talent. What's, what's been your take 
on him and your interaction with him? And, and will he be the first $500 million man in Major League Baseball? Could that happen? If anyone can, it's going to be him because you've got this perfect confluence of immense talent, the drive to keep getting better, uh, the personality to be a superstar in the game. And he was started out so young that he's going to be a free agent at age 25, 26, which is almost unheard of. So um, he's a phenomenal player. He's a great kid as well, having now seen him since he was 19 when he first arrived here. Worked so hard. Uh, and, you know, the last two years at least has not had the protection around him in the lineup. Uh, and he'll just keep taking his walks over and over. He doesn't care. It's, it's the closest thing from a baseball standpoint to Barry Bonds that we've seen since then. Um the ability to stay patient, never chase out of the zone, but then still when you do get that one pitch you might get to hit, he connects for it. So it's been great to watch him. Everybody in D.C. is desperately hoping that the Nats can re-sign him. They've already seen guys like uh, uh, Scherzer, Anthony Rendon, Bryce Harper leave. Strasburg is the one who stayed, and that hasn't worked out because of his injuries. Everybody is dreading that happening. They've got three more years. They've made him a big offer already of $350 million. He turned it down, which is his right to do. The way the system is set up, he's got this year in arbitration, he's making $17 million. He's got two more years where the number is going to keep going up to the point that by the time he gets to his free agent year, he's going to probably be making $30 million a year. And so you can set that bar that high and now negotiate with 30 clubs uh, on what your next contract is going to be. So I get why he and his agent, Scott Boris, would say, let's just wait this out. You don't have to just jump at the offer right now. So we'll see. I know the Nats prioritize him. I know they feel like he is the face of this franchise now. They're going to do everything they can. Honestly, the best thing they can do to try to convince him to stay here might, of course, you got to offer him the money. But on top of that, build another winner so that you hope by 2024, which is his last year under contract, this team is successful again. And he says, okay, this is somewhere I want to stay for the rest of my career. Yeah, he's young, as you said, and has a lot of years left. But at the same time, you look at the professional landscape here recently and just the faces of franchises. Freddie Freeman goes from Atlanta to the, the Dodgers. You know, in the NFL, Russell Wilson goes from Seattle to the, the Denver Broncos. Is is that always a concern that, you know, yeah, you're the face of the franchise, but at the same time, this is a, a business. And, you know, you've got to look at that part of it as well. It is. And fans, you know, here especially have, have come to learn that they've seen so many great young players move on elsewhere. But, you know, ultimately you are rooting for the name on the front of the jersey, not the back. And as upset as people maybe were at the time when Bryce Harper went to the Phillies, kind of controversial going to a division rival. Well, what happened the next year? The Nats won the World Series. Yeah. And they didn't win it because they didn't have Bryce Harper, but they still had a really good team. And in the end, fans were just as happy and thrilled that they won the World Series whether Harper was a part of it or not. It's going to be tough for everyone on the next Friday night to see Max Scherzer making his Mets debut against the Nationals in D.C., but it's a part of the business. You understand that. You want to ideally hope that you can keep a, a handful of franchise icons. They did it with Ryan Zimmerman, who just retired. He's having his number retired. Strasburg, for better or worse, is the other one who will spend his whole career here. You'd like to think Soto could be the next one, but it just doesn't always work out that way, unfortunately. Well, as you said, with Scherzer coming back, you got storylines, you got things to write about, which is which is a good problem to have for you. Uh, I want to leave you on this. Uh, I've I've seen an interview with you before talking about Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, the founder of Facebook, and, and how often do you get uh, confused with him? As you know, people call you or you call them, and uh, do you use it to your advantage? I get it every day, honestly, especially on Twitter, where people will. Uh, start to type in his name, see my name and have a complaint about Facebook and just assume that I'm the right guy to complain to, even though it's on Twitter, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why would you, if you had a problem with Coke, would you then complain to the president of Pepsi? Yeah. Like, I don't think it works that way, but um, it happens every day. Some of it's fun. Some of it's, you know, a little nasty. Um, I've chosen just to embrace it. What are you going to do <laughs> with it? So if somebody, uh, comes at me with a complaint and I can think of a, a snappy response to it. I try to play it off as though they're actually asking about baseball or about the nationals. I try to answer it as earnestly as I can. My readers all know the bit now they, they play along with it. They have fun with it. Uh, I enjoy it. Look, you know, there are times when he's in the news for bad reasons. And I don't like that because it brings a lot of uh, attention 
negatively towards me that shouldn't be directed towards me. I have nothing to do with it. I don't even like Facebook. But, um, but I, you know, people have asked me, uh, why not just change your your name on Twitter? May make it something else. And I use the line from Office Space that the great character Michael Bolton said, "Why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks." <laughs> There you go. There you go. Luckily, Mike McCarroll, the New York Post uh, sports writer, is doing good things. So I don't have to change my name uh, either. We, he was our very first guest uh, on this podcast. Oh, that's great. Um, you've got the, the Natch Chat podcast. How else can people find you, follow you if they, they want to learn about you or, or certainly to, to be able to follow the Nats and, and what you're doing with them you know, this year and, and years to come? So the written work is all on massinsports.com, M-A-S-N sports. Dot com. That's the website for the network that shows all the games. Uh, the, the podcast, as you said, Nat's Chat, that I host with Al Galdi, a longtime radio uh, 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 talk show host in D.C. We've had a lot of fun with that. We have a new episode every morning after every game during the regular season. Uh, and then on Twitter, you can follow me at Mark Zuckerman, not <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. He's not on Twitter. He doesn't own Twitter. He owns Facebook. All right. Well, that's that's great stuff. I know you have that in your Twitter handle, right? You don't you don't own Facebook, but you use Facebook, I think, is what you have on your with your description. Right. 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 Well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, great to learn about you, your background and, and certainly wish you uh, nothing but the best. And uh, like you said, baseball's back. Everybody is uh, happy. Those working it, those watching it as well. And uh, wish you and the Nats uh, a lot of luck this year. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate this. Hey, my thanks to Mark Zuckerman for joining us here. What a great episode. Great stories told by this uh, D.C. sports writer with us. Our thanks to Ben Tritipo as well, one of the scorekeepers for the Nationals, for helping hook us up with Mark and getting us a chance to talk to him today. If you'll enjoy that interview, more to come. There's also more behind us as well, as you could go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Be a subscriber. Make sure you do not miss Another episode as we'll have more great guests coming your way, more great stories that they'll share with us as well. We thank you for joining us here today. We'll see you next time on another edition of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.